in sync now. <laughs> um, Derek Sivers, welcome to the podcast. Jeremy Goldberg, thank you for having me. Brother, I'm excited to talk to you. We were just uh, sort of riffing a little bit about the big topics of conversation that we are going to dive into over the next hour or so. And uh, we'll just see where it goes. Yeah. So uh, first of all, for those who are listening who might not have any idea who you are or what you do, do you mind sort of introducing yourself? (laughs) (laughs) If someone doesn't know who I am, I have no need for them. Yes. All right. Sure. Let's see. What can I say? I was a full-time musician and nothing but a musician from the age of 14 to 29. Made my living playing music and bought a house in Woodstock, New York with the money I made touring. And at the age of 29, I was just selling my CD on my band's website. And my musician friends asked if I could sell theirs as well. And so I accidentally started a little company called CD Baby. Uh, which became the largest seller of independent music on the web with like 150,000-something musicians. Uh, After doing that for 10 years, I felt done, and I sold it in 2008. And since then, have been more of just a writer, speaker, thinker, uh, random dude at large. And that brings us to present. I love that because um, about five minutes ago, I was making myself a tea. And my girlfriend was in the kitchen and she said, who are you talking to today? And, and I said your name and, and she's like, who's that? And, uh, and I was like, well, he's kind of like a, a big thinker, writer, dreamer guy that used to have a business that he sold for a bunch of money. And now he's kind of living like a pensive, thoughtful monk <laughs> who does crafts and creative things. <laughs> so I feel like I wasn't too far off. Yeah, I like it. I mean, especially it, it's it's cool for me to hear you say that because when I sold CD Baby at the age of 38, I thought that I had peaked. Like my my best was behind me and I will just be forever known as the guy who made CD Baby and not much since, you know. Mm. So the fact that I transitioned to these other things was uh yeah, a nice surprise. It reminds me of uh, a talk that I saw from Liz Gilbert, the uh, the writer and the author mm-hmm. of Eat, Pray, Love. Have you seen this one? Yeah. Are you you talking about the, where she gives that talk about inspiration? She says, after Eat, Pray, Love, she yeah. says, best was behind me. Yep. Yeah. And how basically there was no chance that her next piece of work would ever attain the commercial success of Eat, Pray, Love. And she was yep. sort of in this malaise of, well, what do I do now? Yeah. And so what did you, what did you do? You kind of just jumped right into it. I drifted for a year and a half, not sure what I wanted to do. And then I had a flash of inspiration to do what I'm doing now and just went about it in a very deliberate, um, methodical process. That is one thing that I've noticed about you is that you seem to be very thoughtful and very uh, well you like you're a systems guy right you're like a you're a computer programmer background you, you no not background i mean not really background. only a musician background i learned programming right. out of absolute necessity but now that i know how to program yeah when i am faced with a problem i think of how i can 
not just solve it, but like solve it for the world. You know, I, I do want to build systems to solve a problem, not just, you know, have my own two hands on something and do everything manually. It's fun to think how I could make this a system that everybody can use. But yeah, I think that kind of thinking came later after I started CD Baby, actually. I mean, like I said, I, I made CD Baby just for me. Mm. Just, I built this thing to sell my own CD on my band's website. And it was only out of necessity when musicians kept asking me to sell their CD too. I thought, oh man, how do I turn this into a system? So I guess I've been thinking that mm. way since then. And so you unintentionally created a business. Yeah, it was... Even when it was clear that I had started something, I considered it a hobby. I was doing it for free. I wasn't charging any of the musicians money. I was doing it as like my kind of giving back to the music community, you know? Mm. And it was only after, I don't know, about a hundred musicians came my way over a few months and it was starting to take up like my full time. I thought, man, I, I better start charging something for this. <laughs> so yeah, charging was an afterthought. Business was an afterthought. It was just a uh, giving back to the music community kind of project. Love that. Um, okay, so you, you did open the door to one of the three questions that I sent you, which was about different ways of thinking and how to get better at thinking. Do you mind if we dive into that a little bit? Sure. Like the different ways to think? Yeah. So, so for example, we were just thrown around the idea that a systems approach is one way or that mm -hmm. brainstorming or trying to get different perspectives on a problem or a challenge is one way to approach things. And um, this is something that I'm particularly interested in with the work that I do with clients and coaching is trying to help people see things from a different perspective and to recognize that our brain is sort of doing things without our control, so to speak, and that we can kind yeah. of reclaim that power and see things differently. Yeah, I think about this a lot. Like the, the different kinds of thinking off the top of my head, um, short-term versus long-term, that's pretty obvious. Like whether you're thinking in terms of this week versus 50 years, um, which is also kind of a way of saying, like, what do I want now? Or what will my elderly self wish I would have done? Um, Two different ways of thinking. It depends your situation. There's fast versus slow thinking, going with your you know quick instinct, gut feeling on something versus that slow, deliberate consideration. Mm. Um, fixed versus fluid. I like this one a lot. Fixed thinking is when you think that uh, people and things are just are the way they are. It is what it is. That's just how it is. Versus thinking of everything as temporary and malleable. Um, if you see a situation, it's like, well, this is the way it is now, but everything can be changed. And so that's related to the two kinds of thinking, analysis versus creative. So, you know, analysis, like dissecting, like dissecting a frog versus inventing a new amphibian. <laughs> you know, um, then that's related to truth-seeking versus option-seeking, which is another way of saying um, reductive versus expansive, right? Like when you're truth-seeking, you're being intentionally reductive. You're trying to figure out like, yes, but what is the answer? I need to boil it down. Let's remove these options that don't feel right. Uh, let's answer these questions. 
but option seeking then is uh, the opposite of boiling it down. It's uh, splattering it on 20 walls or uh, deliberately adding options or deliberately not answering any questions and only asking more questions. Yeah, and that, that's the one, this, this last one's kind of dear to my heart because I feel like a lot of people are trying to figure out the answer to things, um, especially if you look at the history of philosophy, people are often saying, okay, no, 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 I've got the answer. This is it. This is what life is all about. But to me, that's just, that's no fun. That's not interesting. And I just feel that it's just not true. No matter what they say, there is no one answer. So I much prefer to uh, play with all the options. Mm. And then how does that affect your day-to-day experience? Hmm. Uh, it means I'm not a thought leader. <laughs> um, because I think a leader, by definition, has to be easy to follow. Like a, leader, a good leader of a project would say, we're doing this, this is our project, this is our outcome, now let's go. Whereas an explorer is somebody that goes off into the jungles of darkest Peru and has no idea which way they're going. They're just going to go exploring. So, yeah, I'm exploring. I'm, I, I don't expect anybody to follow me. I'm not being a leader. I'm just off um, exploring different options. Yeah. I think it's somewhat ironic, though, because you're an explorer and then you, you kind of post your findings online or on your podcast for people to read or devour, right? And then ironically, you do have followers. But they're sort of following your journey, I suppose, or the process, right? Right. I mean, I guess when I said I was going for the metaphor of like physically following somebody, right? Mm. So yeah, if somebody finds my explorations interesting, then that's like the physical metaphor of like the, uh, you know, the adventurer that's off in Peru and sending back tales <laughs> of what they've found, but not expecting you to actually do what I'm doing. But some people really do. They feel like I have found the way. Here is how we should live. We should follow these 12 rules. Everybody follow me. This is the way to be, you know? Yeah. And so how is your relationship with authority? <laughs> uh, take a guess. Not so, not so grand? Not so grand. Um, like, no, not even, not even my own. I don't mm. care if I declared something to be true yesterday, then today I'll have fun, you know, rebelling against my previous self, you know? Sorry, I feel like I didn't answer the second half of your question. You asked about different kinds of thinking, but you also said about how do you get better at thinking? Mm. And yeah, speaking of exploring versus leading, you know, it's, you, I think it helps to know what kind of thinking is needed for your situation now. And you can't let anybody else tell you that this is how you should be thinking because nobody knows your scenario like you do. So are you in a decision that's a short-term or a long-term decision, uh, which is more appropriate right now. Sometimes you shouldn't be making long-term decisions. You just need to decide something for today, not forever. 
And then sometimes you really need to solve something in one minute. You know, somebody's waiting for an answer this minute and they really need an answer this minute. But other times you ask yourself like, just because somebody's standing in front of me asking a question, do they really need the answer today or can I sleep on it? Usually you can sleep on it. Like I think that we can all think a lot more slowly and carefully than we usually do. Um, which on that note, yeah, it's like, do you, have you considered every option and now is the time to boil it down? Or is now a better time to keep considering more perspectives? You know, a lot of people, as soon as they get two options, they feel like, okay, well, I've got these two options. Now I've got a dilemma. I need to decide. It's like, oh man, you need to add like 12 more options first <laughs> before you consider that a decision, you know? Uh, don't just stop mm. when you've got two options. And lastly, I think that... No, not lastly. I think I've got two more. The most important thing, I think like the thing that distinguishes good thinking from bad thinking is jumping to conclusions. I think what we often call being stupid, I think of as people who just jump to conclusions. They have one quick thought, the first thought that comes to their mind, they declare that to be the answer because it's the first thing they thought of and they just don't like thinking. <laughs> and so the first thing that comes to mind, they go, there, that's it. That's my answer. It's people that are trying to decide before they get all the facts. Yeah, instead, I think it's much healthier and smarter to go beyond the first or second and even third thing that comes to mind. And then just ask yourself more of these creative questions, like, what's the opposite of that? What would be outrageous? What, what's the everything option? What's the nothing option? What's the go insane option? No. Um, mm. Oh, and lastly, uh, stepping outside yourself. That, I've found this to be the most, one of the most useful things is to, to not be me when I'm trying to decide something. So I'll deliberately impersonate one of my heroes and I'll ask myself, what would this person do? If I were to call this person, this legendary person that I look up to so much, what would they do? What would they suggest? Um, or you can put yourself into a character that's like a Star Trek character, you know, like Spock or Data, one of those people that's just purely rational, that just thinks emotions mm. are a strange thing. Just ask yourself what Spock would do. <laughs> and uh, just, you know, imagine being that purely rational, unemotional person that just looks at the facts and ignores all the emotion. Just, yeah, role-playing is it's a great mm. thought exercise. Yeah, I've heard that described as creating your own sort of board of directors for your life and then right. periodically having a sit down with them, imaginary or otherwise. Uh, but then the power in that is that you get to choose the board, right? Mm -hmm. And you kind of get to call on the different participants, so to speak. So you might have, yeah, Spock and Beyonce and President <laughs> Obama and Abraham Lincoln and <laughs> Who knows, right? Whoever your heroes are. or uh, And of course, the power of a good board. I've never run a board, but I think the power of, of groupthink is having a diverse set of opinions and backgrounds and emotions, mm -hmm. right? And so you want to choose people that can see your situation from very distinctive perspectives. I think that's I what you're getting at. Yeah, I often consult a grumpy rabbi. 
Um, I don't even have one in particular, but just from living in New York City for 10 years, I just kind of imagine that like the rabbi with like the long beard and he's just busy, he's grumpy. And I come in trying to describe my problem. He just looks at me like, ah, have you considered this? <laughs> like, why not just do the obvious? Why not just do this? And I go, ah, oh, yeah. And I like the idea that this isn't my friend. In fact, he doesn't care about me. He just wants me out of his office. <laughs> but I find that useful, like, because he's not taking all of my emotions into consideration. I think that's sometimes the problem when we depend too much on friends is our friends care about us. And so they take our emotions into consideration. But so often what you need is somebody who's not taking your emotions into consideration and just is able to just look at the situation almost minus you mm. and just say, well, clearly just remove yourself from this equation and the answer is obvious. You know, that's what, that's what the grumpy rabbi does to me. I love that. And it relates to, uh, to something I say to my clients. So I work one-on-one and, and coach people. And something I often tell my clients is that I don't care about your mom. I don't care. <laughs> like, I don't care about your family. I, yeah. your, your friends are irrelevant to me. Like what I do care about is you and your life experience. And I think there, there's real power in having somebody who is totally unattached to your relationships and the way that you see the world. Yeah. And can point out alternatives but you you did this really well in uh so i read your book anything you want and you have this section where you talk about from a business perspective but like imagine you had to do it in six months go like imagine you were uh, backpacking in thailand like how would you approach this imagine you could you know everything would work out fine go and uh and i love that Thing. I forgot that was in that book. Yeah. yeah. I do that a lot. Yeah, that's exa- that's the, a perfect example of what I meant. Like, don't just stop at two options. Like, mm. keep going. Think of alternate scenarios. Yeah, and I feel like that's perhaps one reason that people feel stuck is that they feel like there are only two or three options available to them. It's like, yeah. you've got an infinite amount of choice. And so- perhaps- Yeah, I mean, if anything, add do nothing and go crazy as your next two options. <laughs> And then keep going, you know, or, or I could move to Iowa and start a carrot farm. Okay. Or I could do such and such, you know, I could change genders and move to New York. Um, you know, all right, now possible. keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then to, to sort of try and succinctly wrap that bit up, it's about recognizing that there are different ways to think, that there are ways to consciously try to think differently about certain situations based upon an internal evaluation of what's required at that time. Is that close? Yeah. yeah. Or even if you keep a, a little checklist, like I had in my head, like, well, here's some different ways to think, you know, long-term and short-term fixed mm-hmm. versus creative, uh, dissecting versus creating. Um, and then you just try on another one. Cause we often get stuck into one habitual way of thinking that we're used to. So you just deliberately, even if you have to pull up a checklist, look at a different way of thinking of it. Go, oh, okay, hold on, yeah. What would my 90-year-old self want? Uh, or what would, what would be the better decision for my great-grandkids someday? You know, whatever. Mm. Oh, wait, just deliberately mixing up the way you're thinking of it, you know, um, putting on a different tune <laughs> yeah. change the music in your head. Yeah. What would Derek do? Right? <laughs> yeah. Good luck with that. 
<laughs> but I do. I love the uh, the visual of the grumpy rabbi for some reason. Me too. I'm really drawn to that. Uh, <laughs> Me too. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, okay, man. I feel like we've ticked ticked the first box. Uh, <laughs> where do you want to go from here? Do you want to talk about how to control your mind so your mind does not control you? Well, you said it in such a such a creepy voice. I feel like you're like a <laughs> <laughs> like a villain in a movie or something. <laughs> so so audience, uh, Jeremy, when he asked if I want to do this conversation, um, I said, "Well, what do you want to talk about?" And the first thing he said is how do you control your mind so your mind does not control you? Mm. And I had to laugh at this because you realize it's a funny question, right? Like, who's the you that's doing the controlling? You know, mm. your mind is controlling your mind? There's no one else here. It's just, mm. just this one brain. So it's like, it's funny, this idea of like, how do you control your mind? I had this image of a, uh, a dog with its leash in its mouth walking itself, you know? <laughs> Um, one 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 sort of tangent to that that has always made me smile is is knowing that the brain named itself. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah, <laughs> it's like really you chose brain to name yourself. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> In this language, God, it would be funny to find out what. That's not one of those words you learn right away in your first foreign language. The, the word for brain in. Turkish and Hindi and Finnish and such. That would be fun to find out. You know, you know I, I thought when I first jumped on this call, we're probably going to talk about grumpy rabbis and the word for brain in fin Finnish. Finnish, yeah. That's, Finnish. I mean, I usually come back to those two things. <laughs> those are my touchstones. <laughs> um, so, how yeah. To how, to, brain. how to control the brain. My thoughts for you people listening <laughs> are um to don't control it uh don't just don't try it. just observe it and watch your mind and see what it does and most importantly let it talk like write it down and let it all out because your brain your mind whatever you want to call it it has a lot to say and often we feel busy and we feel that we need to solve, you know, shut up brain, I need to solve this. But no, 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 your brain won't shut up until you've let it had its say. So that's, I've journaled hours a day and that's why. Um, but most important, once you've let your brain, your mind have its say, is to doubt it. And this is my favorite thing. I am such a skeptic that I don't believe a word I say. My mind, if my mind says, I want to be a millionaire or I want to be in love, then my next thought is like, uh-huh, yeah, no, you don't. <laughs> you really don't. Here, let's tear that apart. Um, and then you ask yourself questions. No matter what you've stated as some kind of truth for you, then you can ask yourself, like, What's the opposite? How could the opposite of that also be true? Or if you've stated some desire, you say, I want this. Well, then you ask yourself, well, what's the real point of that anyway? And once you get to the point of it, then you ask, well, was all that stuff in between really necessary? How can I just get directly to the point I'm really after? What's a more direct path to what I'm really after? Maybe I got stuck on this ceremonial idea of thinking I needed 
you know, a, a swimming pool in the shape of unicorn because that's what my hero has. Um, but actually what you really want is just tranquility. So challenging your preferences, you know, what if I don't want to be a millionaire? What if I don't want to be in love? I keep saying I want a long-term relationship. What if I really don't? How would that look if I just made that decision that I don't want that? Or, you know, whatever your thing is. And this works for negative thoughts too. Like if your mind just keeps saying like, that person wronged me, they are wrong, then you can just be a skeptic and doubt that too. Like, mm, no, I doubt that they were wrong. Here, let's tear that apart. <laughs> like, what if I'm actually so powerful that I made all of this happen and I made that person act the way they did? What if this whole thing is my fault? Because I'm like a superhero that doesn't realize it. You know, I just woke up and stretched my arms and accidentally knocked down a skyscraper. Um, what if you created all this destruction in your life that you keep blaming others for? Um, you get the idea. Mm. Doubt everything you say. Don't believe a word you say. I often think of the physical metaphor of like picking up a geode or a gem and looking at it from all different angles, you know, like hold it upside down, hold it up to the light, like look through it, flip it upside down. It has a very, very different shape from the top and the, top and the bottom. Mm. And then you realize that your gem is made of paper and you can fold it into any shape you want. Um, you know, you can, you can totally talk yourself into beliefs that empower you and help you take the actions you want. And you can talk yourself out of things that don't empower you. Um, and before we let that subject go, I should say that you need to acknowledge that you have many different selves inside of you with many different conflicting desires, right? Like friends and I talk about this a lot, how part of you wants adventure. And so that part of you grabs the mic and says, I want adventure. I want to travel the world. And you may talk for hours to whoever will listen about your plans for adventure. And they're all true. But then a week later, another voice in your head speaks up. <laughs> the other voice grabs the mic and says, I want security and stability. I want commitment. And you may plan to buy a house in a smart neighborhood, you know, like one that you can stay in for decades and then put down roots. And that's also true. You actually do want both. Um, and this is, where, this is where sometimes it gets annoying for friends that listen to you often is they, they hear you say one thing one week and then the opposite thing the next week. And it sounds like you're changing your mind. But the truth is you actually do want both things. Like these desires are conflicting, but they're both true. You have many selves. And so you have to decide what to do about that. You know, um, same with wanting to start a business, but also being scared to start a business. People often ask me how they can get over their fears. And I say, well, don't get over your fears. Like acknowledge them, let them speak. Yeah, and think, you know, let, let all those fears voice their concerns and, and heed them. Um, same with people who want a committed relationship, but they also want the variety of having different loves in their life. And both of those things are true. It's not like you need to uh, 
declare one of those two to be wrong. You know, um, it's just different sides of yourself and you need to acknowledge this. So yeah, point is to give time for the other voices to speak up because they don't all you know, grab the mic at the same time. Sometimes it takes a week when you're in the throes of excitement about your plans to travel the world, it may take a week or two for that quieter voice to speak up that actually doesn't want that and now is a little embarrassed to say so. Um, and never hush those other voices in the name of consensus. You don't need to uh, make your different selves agree. You can acknowledge that they disagree. Um, yeah, acknowledge them, address them, and let all those different voices have a chance to speak. And so if we assume that identity is fluid somewhat or, or diverse, right? That we can, Walt Whitman, right? We contain multitudes. Mm -hmm. So if we accept that we have many possible identities in our brain and we accept that they are all liars, uh, <laughs> how do we move forward? Hmm. It's often circumstance. You have to look at your situation you're in now. And this is a perfect time to say this because we're talking in May 2020. Who knows when you're listening to this, but in May 2020, there are a lot of people who had very different plans four months ago than the ones they're doing now. Some people have had to completely change their plans based on our current situation. So yeah, four months ago, you, there are actually, I did hear from some people that four months ago, literally quit their job to travel the world. And then one month into it went, oh, uh, <laughs> what oh do you mean all the airports are closed? And they like, I, I, yeah, I met somebody from San Diego that just like, after literally like three weeks into a year long world travel, like just kind of went back to San Diego and just went to go stay at her parents' house because like she had gotten rid of all of her stuff and was ready to be nomadic for a year. And so when these things happen, you've just got to look at your current situation and say, okay, well, no matter what I said before, now the situation's changed. So what do I want in this situation? And yeah, it often means thinking about your different options, your different scenarios, and then just picking the one that... Hmm, I like often picking the one, picking the goal that makes me jump up and take action. It's one thing to have daydreams and, and list lots of potential goals, but you can judge a goal by how well it makes you take action in the present moment. So if one of your voices has an opinion or a plan that makes you jump up and take action, well then almost always doing something is better than doing nothing. It just gets you trying things in reality instead of in theory. Mm. Yeah, and that almost relates to feeling, I suppose, um, which would be the counterpoint to thinking in some ways. So, so you think about the options, you think about what you think you want, you consider your values, you consider alternative perspectives, and then at some stage there's a sort of aha moment or an epiphany that sends a sort of bolt of lightning through you that feels exciting that you want to take action on. And so you're saying, um, or you're suggesting to lean into that as a kind of guidepost or a breadcrumb towards where you're supposed to be. Yeah. Nice summary. Thanks. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. 
I think that's right. Or at least I, I think that that makes intuitive sense to me because I often feel like when I'm sort of paralyzed or stuck in thought or deep consideration, um, what I'm yearning for is a feeling. Um, I'm yearning for uh, an intuitive kind of excitement or I'm, I'm yearning for some kind of stability or some kind of sensation in my body yep. that I'm kind of using my mind as a tool to try to discover. Yeah. When I'm playing out hypotheticals for myself, I don't really separate thinking and feeling. Like if I'm thinking of different options, then for each one, I'm feeling how that feels in my gut, like how that, mm. um, that possible future feels. Uh, it's hard to really separate those two things. Mm. Um, you mentioned that you journal for several hours a day. I'm curious if you could expand on that a little bit. Do you have a specific process or why do you do that? How do you do it? Um, I do it more in times of decision when I'm wrestling with a situation. I'm trying to figure out what I think about. Okay. Sorry. Let me back up. Okay. The, it wasn't until I was how old? 44. Suddenly at the age of 44, sitting in New Zealand, I found myself really wishing that I could go back to when I was 29 to 38 and look at my daily diary from then to see if, like, was I as happy as I remember? Was I as busy as I remember? What I, like, n my memories are getting blurry with time. And I wish that I could have the official, you know, word from the, uh, word from the front of me that day. But I, what I did for years and years and years was to only turn to my diary when I had some kind of predicament that I wanted to sort out my thoughts. So really for like 20 years, I would only turn to my diary as a way to sort out my confused or tangled thoughts. So if you look at my past diaries or when I look at my past diaries, all I see are dilemmas that I'm trying to work through, which is a little interesting. But I wish I had journaled the mundane. I wish I had written on a day-to-day -day basis, here's what I did today, and here's how I felt. Even if it's just like three paragraphs, you know, woke up early, dashed immediately into the office, uh, built some servers for a new such and such, had to hire a new person and donor and put out fires and stayed there until midnight and went home. Like, it's only a few sentences, and today that doesn't seem important. But for your future self, your future self might wonder how you were feeling back in 2020 or wherever, how you were feeling when you met your future spouse, <laughs> how you were feeling when you first made that cross-country move and first arrived. Like, you should journal these things on a day-to-day -day basis. So it wasn't until I was 44 and wished that I had done it in the past, that's when I started doing it. Um, you know, ever since then. So for me, that was six years ago. I'm 50 now. So now every day, no matter what, I put aside a little time just to write what I did today. And while doing that, I share, uh, I write down some thoughts or just some feelings and emotions, just something that's on my mind. But then after a few years of doing that, I found that there were some topics that kept coming up like over and over and over again, I had thoughts on Singapore. 
because it was this recurring thing about whether we should move back to Singapore or not. Is that a great place to raise a kid or not? Is that where I really want to live for 10 years or not? I kept coming to, back to that idea in my diary. So finally, I thought, you know, I should really organize all of my thoughts on Singapore in one place. So I made a new folder called Thoughts On, and I opened, started a new file in there called singapore.txt, where I just stamped today's date. And anytime I have more to say on the subject of Singapore, I stamp today's date and I start writing in that one same file. So then I can go review my history of thoughts on Singapore in this case. And then, so of course, once I started that, I did it for everything, you know, thoughts on movies I've recently seen, thoughts on getting a dog, thoughts on such and such that, you know, it's just like everything. And then there's some people that keep coming up in my life. Thoughts on Erica, thoughts mm. on Carla, thoughts on, um, thoughts on parenting. Anyway, you get the idea. Mm. Um, so now I do these two different things. One is the daily, just open up today's journal and just start dumping my mundane actions and my thoughts into today's diary. But then when I'm recurring back to, yeah, something that keeps coming back to, I, I go into a separate thoughts on journal on that subject. Yeah, so you're very much a systems guy. <laughs> well, but I just told you the whole process of yeah, how it got yeah. there out of necessity. No, um, I, I love it. I, I think it's fantastic. It's, it's unique. Um, and I imagine it's really good fodder for blog posts or, you know, podcast ideas, things of this nature. Yeah, of course. Yeah, when I'm sitting there exploring a thought and asking myself questions, sometimes I go, ooh, Ooh, that's kind of interesting. And then, I, of course, I start a new file, which is going to turn into a blog post because now this is like, oh, this is something that applies to other people, not just me. Uh, yeah. All right, Derek. I think that's. Uh, I'm going to wrap up on point number two there. And the th <laughs> so the third question that I that I threw your way uh, weeks ago, and I should say uh, to those listening, just a bit of background. You um, were very clear in that you are a slow thinker, that you like time to consider ideas so that you feel prepared for conversations. Shh, don't tell my secret. Yeah, sorry. Let everybody I, think that I'm just like brilliant in the moment. Yeah, you know? no, you're, you are brilliant in the moment. Because no, a lot, no. I mean, to be fair, a lot of um, what we have discussed so far is me kind of taking us on little tangents and, and things. But so I, I sent you these couple of questions. And the third question was, what does a successful life mean and how do you get there? So I'm curious I'm about you. so glad you asked this because when you asked, I had never actually thought about it. Oh. And so then I did. <laughs> and so here it is. Derek's definition of success debuting on Jeremy Goldberg's podcast. Success means nothing more than you are feeling proud. That's my definition. Hmm. And so since it's a personal feeling, nobody else can tell you what success is for you. So like, maybe you only need to make a hundred bucks doing something you love, but like maybe a billion isn't enough. Maybe success is having a healthy and happy family. And that's your definition of success. And nobody else can tell you otherwise, because it's just whatever makes you feel proud. Um, it doesn't even necessarily mean taking action, right? Like it can be stopping an action. You can successfully quit drinking and that can be a big success. It can be shifting your mindset. 
So it doesn't even require any actions. You could just change the way you're thinking so that you're at peace. And even though your actions haven't changed, just shifting your mindset can be a success, right? Like you can successfully get over a bad breakup. And that was a success to change your thinking so that you were truly over a bad breakup, even though you're just sitting there thinking, no action, right? So by that definition, when you ask me like, how do you get there? Well, then I think, well, the instructions then are just make yourself proud, like whatever that is for you. So the directive, make yourself proud, usually defines your next action or how to handle your current situation. You know, like if you ask yourself or tell yourself, I'm going to make myself proud now, like usually something comes to mind when you say that. It's doing the right thing, the difficult thing. Yeah, the difficult thing, but the right thing. And lastly, I realized that you have to know whether you're driven by satisfaction or dissatisfaction. Because my thought was, if you want to make yourself proud, well, then you could just lower the bar all the way so that the tiniest little thing makes you proud. But that's only if you're motivated by satisfaction, right? So if satisfaction motivates you, then lower the bar all the way down so that you have daily wins and then just raise it bit by bit so that you can feel successful the whole time. But if dissatisfaction motivates you, then what you need to do is raise the bar so that you don't feel successful until you've achieved this really difficult mission. And um, yeah, this comes up a lot when I'm talking with friends about them trying to achieve something. And I'm often recommending like raising the bar all the way. And a lot of them go, ah, no, that, that sounds horrible. And then I realize, yeah, okay, they're not driven by dissatisfaction. This is a person that wants to feel success along the way. And that actually motivates them more to feel good along the way. But some people, yeah, they're only motivated by raising the bar so high that they prefer to stay in a state of dissatisfaction until they get their success. Mm. And so then it's interesting for those people because they are dissatisfied with their life, but also proud of it at the same time. Yeah. Um, when I lived in Singapore, a very wise Scottish friend of mine who had been living in Singapore for 20 years, and I mentioned that he's Scottish because sometimes I think outsiders have the best insights into a local culture of a place. Mm. I mentioned something about how Singaporeans always complain and how they're never happy. They're always complaining. And he goes, ah, he said, I've noticed this as I've traveled around the world, that the places that are the most dissatisfied and complaining are usually the most prosperous ones. And the places that are just kind of, hey, don't worry, be happy, enjoy the day, end up being the least prosperous ones. They may be happier, but because of that, they're just, um, they're not progressing as fast. So his examples, he pointed out Chile in South America as a dissatisfied complaining place that is more prosperous than its happy-go-lucky neighbors. And I thought that was really interesting. So yeah, th there might be a version of that for 
people too that if you're if you're just not satisfied with the quality of your quality of your work until it's an absolute masterpiece well then yeah you might keep hammering away and practicing into the night until it's perfect whereas somebody who's like yeah good enough you know hey it, that's great they're happy but in the end the quality of their work might not be as good as that person that remained dissatisfied it's a really interesting idea I'm thinking of it as a formula like success equals pride plus dissatisfaction or some kind of, it's an interesting idea to accept that a successful life requires dissatisfaction on some level. And I suppose Mm, it's only for some people. I think other people, other people would be so demotivated by constant dissatisfaction Mm. that they would quit. They need daily wins or weekly, to feel that they're on the right path, to feel that they can do this thing, mm. to feel that incremental improvement. No, I think it's, it's definitely some people it's, are driven. It's by, a spectrum. Yep. You got to know your preference and what works for you, usually by trial and error, you know, the, mm. the massive difference between in theory and in practice. Yeah, because I suppose if you go to one of those countries that's really laid back and chilled out and, and everybody's super stoked, then you would, and they would say like, no, we're successful right? Mm-hmm. And if you go to Chile, it's a, it's a different perspective. It's a different lens. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I, I've never been to Chile, but I'll, 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 use, I'll Me neither. still think of Singapore as my better role model. It's like Singaporeans are, they've got an amazing government. The government is brilliant. It's genius. And yet Singaporeans are still not satisfied with it. And they still hold it to higher standards, still say it's not good enough, even though it's amazing. And I think that's what keeps pushing the Singapore government to continue getting better and better and better is that their populace is still not satisfied no matter how brilliant they are. And I suppose some level of, you know, contentness or well-being relates to where you draw that line on that spectrum, right? If you are perpetually seeking and, um, and not obtaining, so to speak, as an example, then you're going to be dissatisfied more often than not. And you're probably, your mm. life might suffer in some sense. Whereas, Maybe, although, well, sorry but to interrupt, but then let's go back to the original definition, which really felt like a good, uh, an insight to me is that mm. success is, means nothing more than you are feeling proud. Individually. So, yeah, so nobody can tell you like some kind of objective measure what is success or not. It's, it's totally up to you. So mm. if... Uh, person hanging out on the beach in Sicily is just happy with their life and that's a success, well, then, you know, who cares that the people in Singapore are making more money? <laughs> you know, they, by that person's measure, they are successful because they're proud of their life and what they're doing. Yeah. Okay. So I want to amend, amend my formula. I think that <laughs> potentially, and I'm just thinking at, off the top of my head here, but I feel like potentially one element that is required would be honesty. Um, And I mean that from like a deeper sense of authentic truth of, am I really proud of this life or am I using this life to hide from Mm -hmm. the things that I truly desire and how I really want to show up in the world? And I say that because I've talked to a lot of people who are proud. They have businesses and cars and careers and families and beautiful homes and money in the bank. And, and there is a sense of pride in that, but there's also a sense of longing for yeah. a life unfulfilled or, or, or not even sought, so to speak. 
Yeah. Um, I don't know where I'm going with that, Jerry. No, I, I get where you're going. I, it's interesting to me, these people that have like $100 million and don't consider themselves successful enough yet. Um, they're still not proud enough of what they've done. They still feel like, well, I'm not really a success yet. Not till I hit that 200 million mark or whatever it may be. Not till we are the world's biggest such and such, you know? Mm. Um, yeah, it's amazing. And so how have you dealt with that sort of comparison trap or the, the egoic desire to judge based upon others? Judge myself based on others? Yeah, of, of where you are, what you have, how you're living. Hmm. I That's think maybe a question for another podcast, but no, no, no. I felt so, I think I've always felt so removed from the game of society's norms that I just never really, I never measured myself by everybody else's measures because I don't consider myself to be playing that game. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I've, I've never needed to, impress others i live in a tiny little empty home and i'm happy with it i don't care what it looks like from the outside mm. you know etc yeah i mean that's why a lot of the decisions i make that seem weird are just because i don't care to follow the the norms in fact i probably get a sense of pride that i'm not <laughs> doing the normal thing you know that i've made up my own measures mm. What are some examples of things that you're proud of in your life? Hmm. I'm proud of my mental shuffle of, um, of rethinking things. I'm proud that I didn't get sucked into the kind of um, a traditional way of thinking and thinking that I needed to kind of follow the norms. I think that came from being a long-haired, rebellious musician at the age of 14 and deciding that I wanted to go be a rock star. And so none of this stuff that they're teaching me in high school applies to what I want out of life. And I think that just set me on a good path. And then even as I was about to go off to music school, I had this great music teacher who just taught me that, um, that the way they teach things in music school is is moot and you're, you're much smarter than that. You can ignore the curricula and go make things happen yourself. And I think... At every step along the way, I felt that the rewarded message I was getting is uh, the typical rules don't apply to you. And I'm proud of myself that I kept pushing down that path and kind of forged my own way of looking at the world. Hmm. I love that. It reminds me, uh, I have a friend named Traver Bohm who uh, gave a really wonderful TED Talk about pain. And it arose from him spending a month in a dark kind of secluded cave thing. No light. People brought him food and he was, he was trapped in there for like a month voluntarily. And he had sort of three core insights. And one of them, when he came out, he wrote it down, which was there are no rules. And Hmm. it's kind of a, a liberating way to view the world, right? Is that, the societal norms, the familial norms, et cetera, morals in some sense, values, like they're all choices that we get to make. And, um, and we have the power and the responsibility at a core level to kind of create any kind of experience that we want. And I think that can feel overwhelming at times to a lot of people. <laughs> right. It's, um, 
to me, the way I think of it in my own head is that nothing has any inherent meaning that we just project meaning onto things if we want, or people often project meaning onto things because they've heard other people do it. And so they're doing it too. But if you kind of, you know, shake it off and start from scratch, you can realize that nothing has any inherent meaning. So even, you know, when people say, uh, sorry, Mother's Day was like last week, I think. So people are like, well, you have to call your mother on Mother's Day. It's Mother's Day. That is one rule that you do not break. You must call your mother on Mother's Day. I'm like, eh, somebody just invented that holiday. Like, no, sorry, your, your guilt isn't working on me. It means nothing to me. And I just, I just had a friend a couple of days ago who was like shocked that I didn't call my mother on Mother's Day. And how could you? And it's just so funny. I was like, where, where are you getting this meaning from? Like, who at Hallmark convinced you that this was so important? You know, was it the... Was it Flowers, Inc.? Was it Hallmark? Was it, you know, is your mother just guilting you? I don't know, but yeah, I have none of those meanings here. And yeah, you can just extrapolate that to lots of other things in life. Right? Mm. Society's norms, they, they say that we must do this and must do that. I'm like, nah, I don't think so. I think you just made that up. <laughs> or someone made that up, right? Like even just the whole, the whole notion of, of countries, Mm. Eh, you know, you just realize, especially when you're walking around borders in Europe or whatever, like, yeah, no, this is just through some weird circumstance of history, Europe is considered 35 countries and India is considered one, but it could have been the opposite. You know, mm. all of Europe could have been one country and India could have been 37 countries. This whole idea of borders and lines and this is a country and that's not, or that's them and this is us and we're going to keep you out of our country. It's just kind of... It's like kids playing hot lava with the floor and, you know, all right, I'm going to draw this line and you can't cry. The ground is hot lava now. You know, that's Canada now. <laughs> that's yeah. Belgium now. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just, somebody made this up. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's so true. And I've been thinking about the same thought because I'm trying to move up to Canada right now. <laughs> all right. And as an American in a global pandemic, the border is literally closed. And yep. It just feels so surreal that there are parts of Earth that <laughs> I can't go to. It's like, just because, because of yeah. a, a line on a map or an idea that is called a country has declared that I require certain characteristics. I mean, th- this is a rabbit hole that we're sliding down. So uh, <laughs> I want to bring us back. It's a good though. one, though. So, somebody okay. asked me once, like, you know, if, if you could have any physical thing in the world, what would it be? You know, a mansion, a Ferrari, or whatever. And uh, my answer was uh, every passport in the world. I would like mm. a universal passport. That would be at the top of my list. Is like, mm. um, yeah, to have 190 passports from 190 countries. So it's every single country in the world. I would have the legal right to go there, be there, stay there, whatever mm. I wanted. That would be cool. I want that more than a Ferrari. Yeah. So, like freedom, it sounds like is the core value or a. Or power. I don't know which is... No, oh God, not the power. Not no, power. you're right. It's, it's the... It's freedom? Yeah, and options. Um, yeah, my, my favorite option is the option that gives you more options. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I, uh, I recall knowing a yoga teacher who, as a, as a gratitude offering at the beginning of a class, she said, can we just give gratitude to options? And <laughs> how how privileged we are to have them and uh i was reminded of that a couple months ago when uh all of this 
virus stuff happened and we're in lockdown and we can no longer go to places and we can no longer hug our friends and many of the options day to day were removed. And um, it was a nice reminder of that sort of refreshing perspective. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, Derek, I'm conscious of time. We've been talking nearly an hour now. Um, we haven't hit the people struggling with presence, but we can uh, talk about that. Are you, you've got time for that? Uh huh. Okay. <laughs> Let's do it. That's uh, box number four. People who are struggling with presence. What do we do about it? <laughs> um, well, the, the question you emailed me was people who are struggling with presence, being anxious about the future, lost in the past, etc. Okay. Um, and I love that you put it that way because to me, being present is just one option. Like, it's not your only choice and it's not always the correct choice. You get to make your own virtual reality in your head. You don't have to wear the goggles. Uh, you can go physically somewhere else in your head and take a trip anywhere you want. You can immerse yourself in videos from that place. I mean, actually, like, go to YouTube and watch a whole bunch of videos mm. uh, that people took in that place and go read a book from that place and vividly imagine yourself in that place so that you might actually forget that you're in your own bedroom. It really feels like you're in that place. You can just do that on purpose, just deliberate daydreaming. You can visit the past on purpose. I do this sometimes. I have a couple really, really happy memories. And sometimes when I feel like it just to help me sleep or just if I'm having a hard day or something, I will just go lay down on the couch and just deliberately go back to that moment. I'll put myself in that moment and I'll replay that movie a few times. I'll make it bigger and more awesome than it even was. Like I'll just vividly and deliberately go immerse myself in the past. Um, and then you can do past imagination. You can do counterfactual thinking, which is like thinking how things could have turned out differently in the past. You get to deliberately play with it. Your imagination is, is amazing, right? So you can just go play in it, right? You can make many possible futures. So don't ask yourself, what's my ideal future? That's a dangerous, uh, dangerous question because it limits you to just one. So instead, I love coming up with like 10 different futures to please the different sides of my personality, right? Like, like we talked about earlier, part of me really does love this daydream of finding a really nice, safe, secure place in Golden Bay, New Zealand, right there in between two of the best hiking tracks and one of the most beautiful, wonderful, safest little nooks of the world. But then another part of me really wants to just go fully nomadic and adventure the whole world and get to know it all. Um, so you can daydreaming about, daydream about an overwhelming, adventurous future and daydream about a sweet, romantic future. And do one at a time, you know, don't, don't confuse yourself too much. But like, you know, uh, the, the future that would be the last thing that anyone ever expected you, of you or a future where all of your dreams come true. And then you get to make up scenarios for yourself, like deliberately imagine what would I do if I got $100 million tomorrow 
and just sit there and just dive into that hypothetical, right? What would I do if I got paralyzed tomorrow? Uh, what would I do if I got world famous tomorrow and suddenly everybody in the world wanted a piece of me? How would I react to that? How would that be? So my favorite one lately, I know this is going to sound bleak, but it's not, is like I've been deliberately picturing the worst case pandemic dystopian future. Like, like just picture the worst doomsday scenario of how that, you know, we never find a cure. We're never able to go out again, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The travel is eliminated completely. <laughs> um, and I ask myself, well, how could I thrive and be happy even in that scenario? Which then makes me reflect on, well, what's the minimum I need to be happy? Um, and I've just broken it down to like, you know, four things. Like, well, as long as I have these four things, I'm good. I really kind of don't care what happens in the outside world that much because I know I can be happy even in that dystopian future. So um, anyway, you get the point. Is that I think that being present is overrated. Uh, don't struggle to be present. Instead, just feel free to deliberately daydream. It's an interesting idea. We, I need to have you back one day to dive more into that, I think. Um, but <laughs> sure. I'm, I'm curious, what are your four things? Oh, um, number one, quiet. I've noticed that as long as it's silent, I'm happy. Um, number two, we take it as a given, but climate, meaning <laughs> it would be hard to be happy if I was freezing and shivering and huddled in front of a fire. It would be hard to be happy if I was just dripping with sweat because it was, you know, unbearably hot. So as long as I have like a decent climate and God, what's my, oh, I want to live, as long as I can live near nature of any sort, it can be a city park or a massive forest or something, anywhere near nature, I really spend about like one to two hours a day just out in forests and or fields or wherever, just walking around. Um, that's a major part of my daily happiness. And God, what was the fourth thing? Um, I think just having a comfortable home, even if it's just like two rooms where I can just do my, oh, I know what it was, the view. I was thinking if, if I was literally in a jail cell, even if it was a nice climate and it was quiet and it was near nature, you know, I would find it hard to be happy with no windows at all because I just noticed that my eyes actually get blurry and all messed up if I haven't, you know, seen more than 20 feet. So I'd like to live in a place that has a window uh, that can look outside and see something more than 20 feet away. So there it is. Those are my only four criteria. If I have those four things, I'm good. Yeah. It's just like lowering expectations right down. Yeah. It's nice to know what's your minimum that mm. you need to be happy. Um, because then it makes you realize like, yeah, you know, no matter what goes on in the world of politics or whatever, whatever people vote for or decide or whatever laws are passed, like, you know, I'm, as long as I have these four things, I'm good. And yes, mm. then of course you can build upon that and you can go fight for whatever you feel like fighting for. But it's nice to know what your minimum necessary to be happy is. Because once you've got those things, everything else is just the icing on the cake. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It's a, it's a powerful shift as well, because I've talked to people who are often focused upon making more money to sustain their way of life. And you kind of dive into that 
and they discover that maybe I don't need that car and the corresponding car payment. Maybe I don't need the huge house. I'd be happy in an apartment. And they kind of minimize or simplify their life in a way, and suddenly everything's changed. So it's not a matter of needing more, but it's a matter of needing less. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm living that one a lot. When I said the hypothetical of what would I do if I got $100 million tomorrow, yeah. I do that one to myself a lot. It's, it, that's one of those thoughts on journals that I keep coming back to mm. because, Jeremy, it stumps me every time. Every time I think, well, what would I do if I had $100 million tomorrow? Like, what would I buy? What would I get? What mm. would I hire? And every time it just stumps me because as soon as I think of something like, you know, a big house on a hill, then I think, eh, I don't want a big house. <laughs> what would I do with like five bedrooms? Yeah, then you got to clean it. You know? Exactly. I'd have to buy stupid furniture to put in it. Um, you know, I don't want a Ferrari. Have you actually heard those things? They're like, rawr, rawr, rawr. they're so yeah. stupid, noisy. No, mm. I don't want that. On it. And so no matter what, thing that money can buy, I immediately think of the downside. Even when I think, you know, well, I could hire somebody, you know, the next thing I think of is like, eh, yeah, but then I have like another person's expectations on me and like somebody I'm responsible for. And like, yeah, every, everything that you would do with a hundred million dollars, I immediately think of the downside to it. So the mm. same conclusion I always come back to is, eh, I'd give it all away. I just don't yeah. want it. I love that. I think we're kindred spirits, man. Um, we should mention, do you mind mentioning what you did with the money after you sold your business? Because I think that's a bit of an interesting, you can keep it very brief, but yeah, uh, uh, well, the briefest way, if you, if you wish, I, I'm just conscious of your time. Sure. I know. I don't care. I'll go to sivers.org slash trust T R U S T to read the full tale. But in short, um, it went like this. I had a handshake deal. Actually, no, it was more than a handshake. It was like a letter of intent with the company that was buying my company. And we had this agreed upon price of $22 million. And at the time I had no debts. CD Baby was already profitable. I already had a few million dollars in the bank. I was the sole owner. I had no investors. It was free and clear. Um, I didn't need the $22 million. And in fact, I didn't even know what the hell I was going to do with it. Same question as I just, we just talked about. And so I was mentioning this to my lawyer who, who had a background in tax law and was just a really nice, good guy. And he just said like, wow, so how do you feel about this? Uh, I was just like, eh, I've thought about it a lot. I'm just going to give it away anyway. I'm just going to give it to charity. And he said, are you serious? And I said, yeah. He said, all of it? I said, yeah. He goes, how serious are you about this? Like on a scale of zero to 10. I said, 10. I'm absolutely 100% going to give it all away. I do not want it. In fact, I think it would be harmful for me to have it in the bank. I think it would burn a hole in my pocket and I would do stupid things. I don't want it. I'm going to give it away. And he said, well, if you're really serious about this, we've got time to restructure this deal before it happens. You can set up a charitable trust now, transfer the entire ownership of the company into the trust, and then it's gone. You can never, ever, ever get it back. So even if this sale falls through, that company's gone now. It belongs to charity. But assuming the sale goes through, then the purchaser will buy CD Baby from the trust, and that entire $22 million will go to charity. 
Whereas if you keep it in your name, well, then $22 million is going to come to you. $7 million will go right back out to the IRS and only 15 million will go to charity. I was like, Ooh, yeah, I want the whole 22 million to go to charity. I don't want it to ever touch my hands. And he said, all right, are you sure? <laughs> Sleep on this for a week. Tell me next week. And a week later, I was like, yeah, man, I'm sure. So yeah, we set up a charitable trust, uh, the Independent Musicians Charitable Remainder Unitrust. Um, and the reason I loved this idea so much is it feels like the circle of life, that this money came from musicians and now it's going to go back into the circle of life to fund the next generation of musicians. So that 22 million uh, or whatever it is at when I die is going to all go back to music education to help train the next generation. So yeah, that plan, that plan made me deeply happy. And so that's what I did. And proud. Yeah, there you go. I, yeah, I'm <laughs> proud of that. Although I just take it as a given. Yeah. Like, you know, like I was saying five minutes ago with the thought experiment, it's like, what would I do with $22 million? Like, what kind of idiot would I have to be mm. to spend $22 million? It's like, God, no, 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 no. I don't mm. even want it. You know, it's just, I just actually didn't want it. So it just felt like the right thing to do. I can't even say I'm that super proud of having done it. It just was the right thing to do. Hmm. Well, I think there's, I would encourage you to be proud of doing the right thing for yourself and for society. I think that's good. And I think we need more people doing more good. So thank you for that. <laughs> yes, anytime. <laughs> uh, Derek, I, I so appreciate your time. Uh, thank you for coming on. This was fascinating and I'm sure has resonated with a lot of people. You have a very incredible mind and uh, your voice is like just this soothing, warm blanket, man. <laughs> Like, like several times during, because we're, we're not doing the video, we're doing only audio. And so several times I find myself looking out the window at this <laughs> massive tree and then having to snap back in and reminding myself that I'm not listening to a podcast, I'm hosting a podcast. Like, oh yeah, hang on, I got to ask Derek another question. <laughs> Is that what happened earlier? Yeah, um, exactly. You know, it's funny, my... I don't mean to have a soothing voice, but dude, ever since I was a teenager, you don't know how many friends have literally fallen asleep on the phone with me <laughs> while we're talking. Like we'll be talking and they'll ask me a question. I'll answer it. Not as long-winded as I did with you, but like, mm. um, I'll just answer a question and then like pretty soon I'll hear. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's why I had to laugh. You need to Curse like my a, soothing voice. You need a, like a sleep meditation or something. Yeah. God. You know what's the funny thing? Sorry, now we're just doing weird random tangents. Running CD Baby, I would listen to every single album that came in the door. That was like part of what we do is just mm. listen to it so we know how to categorize it, how to rank it, how to link it to other things. And what's funny is this category of people that would make meditation albums. Mm. And the music comes in, it's like, ding. And sometimes they would have the most annoying voice. It would be like, Imagine yourself as a ball of light. <laughs> Go on for an hour like that. I'm like, oh man. Yeah, you needed somebody uh, with a different voice. Anyway, yeah, if only they could find somebody with a really soothing, warm blanket <laughs> kind of voice, you know? <laughs> if only you knew a guy. <laughs> All right, there we go. Bringing it back shallow before we say goodbye. <laughs> well, All thank right, you. And by the way, thank you for uh, asking some really fun 
deep questions. It is so much more fun to wrestle with, uh, you know, hey, what's the definition of success? That is so much more fun to talk about than, you know, some story from my history. So thanks for the great questions and thanks for having me on. You're very welcome, brother. I appreciate you being here. I mean, obviously I'm biased, but wasn't that a great episode? Isn't he just a dude? His voice is just silky honey pouring into my brain. Do check him out online. You can find him at sivers.org. I'll post links to that stuff in the show notes below. And uh, yeah, if you're new here, why not stop by? Check out the previous episodes. There is a lot of content, a lot of material from really brilliant and wonderful humans. Lots to learn below. Download a couple, get it in your ear bones. Thank you for being here. I adore you. I sincerely appreciate you giving some of your time and attention to my work. Thank you for the five-star reviews. Thank you for sharing it, telling your friends and family and the mailman all about the podcast that you just listened to that you loved. I am grateful.